If you would join me in just one more prayer for the preaching of God's word. Lord, we know that faith comes by hearing. But how are we to believe if we do not hear? How are we to hear if nobody preaches? Oh, Lord, we pray that even now your word would go forth, not as mine, but as yours, that it would go forth with clarity, faithfulness, that would all amount to a glorying in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this past December, about five miles from where I work in Washington, D.C., a man named Edgar Welch walked into a pizzeria, one that my wife and I have frequented on a number of occasions. They have ping pong tables there you can play with. Walks into this pizzeria with an assault rifle. Mr. Welch had been following the story that children were being trafficked through this pizza joint. And he, living in North Carolina, convinced, got in his car and was committed to drive to D.C., break into the building, and rescue the children. So as reporters have indicated, he entered the building, fired the assault rifle on the locked door where he presumed children were located, and as he entered in, you might guess, nothing. No children. Mr. Welch had been duped by what people today are calling fake news. Fake news has placed many victims in precarious, even life-threatening situations. For Mr. Welch, it resulted in prison, but for many, even those who aren't victims, there's still the, the constant burden of not knowing whether what you hear is reliable, whether the news that you're hearing is really to be trusted. Let me ask you this morning. How do you know that what you believe is reliable? You know, you're here this morning inside of a Christian church when many Mainers around you are using their time for other things. So what what convinces you to come in here because of what you assume what Christians believe is reliable? Last week, we began a series in the book of Galatians titled, What Christians Really Believe. And this morning, we want to look at the reliability of what Christians believe. You see, at the core of Christianity is the gospel, which literally means good news. It is news. Good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ for any who would turn away from their sin and trust in him alone. But how do we know such news is, in fact, reliable? Well, that's actually the very question that was facing Paul by the church, churches in Galatia in our passage this morning. We'll be in verses 11 to 24. If you want, go ahead and turn there with me now. You'll find it on page 1810 if you're using the Pew Bibles in front of you. And if you recall from last week, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to these churches, churches that presumably he and Barnabas had planted, as you see in Acts 13 and 14, throughout southern Galatia, which is kind of modern-day Turkey. And he's writing to them because they had been infiltrated by these false teachers who were seeking to lead them astray, these what Paul calls Judaizers, trying to tell these new converts that while Paul's message is partially true, it's incomplete. 
Yes, you need grace, but you also need the law of Moses. If you want to truly be saved, grace and works. So after Paul defends both his apostleship, because what the Judaizers called into question is really Paul is not a true apostle and his gospel is not a true gospel. So in defense of that, defending his apostleship and then his gospel, in those first 10 verses we considered last week, Paul proceeded in our text this morning with a more detailed defense, pointing to the source of his gospel. And he offers us a summary of what he'll argue in the first two verses, verses 11 and 12. So if you will, let's look there first. Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 12. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Here is Paul's summary argument. The rest of the passage will effectively serve as a defense of this argument. He begins putting all of his cards on the table and says the gospel is reliable because it is divine. It came directly from God through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It is uniquely divine. You know, it reminds me of how Jesus responded when the Pharisees challenged by what authority he performed miracles. Do you remember what he said? He, speaking to them, counters their argument saying, I will ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? And in a similar way, Paul counters his opponents by seeking to prove that his gospel is also not from human origin, but is itself from God. So to deny it is, in fact, to deny God. And he does this, as we'll see, through proving its divine power, its divine authenticity, that it is authentic, untainted, pure, divine authenticity, and its divine purpose, divine power, divine authenticity, and divine purpose. So let's begin with our first and longest defense of Paul's gospel. It has divine power. Verses 11 to 17. Follow along with me, if you will, as I read. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preach is not something man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For, so his defense, defense, first defense, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth, called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. 
I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Paul illustrates the divine power of the gospel by pointing first to his own conversion. Effectively, Paul is saying, do you remember me? Do you remember who I was before I became a Christian? I was the last guy you would ever assume to become a Christian. Vegas odds? Oh, they were entirely against them. Not a soul would have put a bet on Paul becoming a Christian. He had it all as a faithful Jew. There would be no worldly reason, no worldly gain for Paul to ever give that up. And every worldly reason and every worldly gain for Paul to keep going as he was going. For starters, we see his life was marked by intensely, as he said, or your translation might say violently or beyond measure. Paul was persecuting the very Christian church. This is recorded in Acts chapter 7. You see in verse 58 when Stephen was martyred. He was martyred for being a Christian. They stripped him of his garments and put it at whose feet? A young young man named Saul. The name that Paul had before he was converted. Just a few verses later, we see, actually the immediate next verse, Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And Paul was already a leader. He had already re- reached a position of authority, authority to approve execution, authority to impose imprisonment. And it makes sense, looking at our passage, he says he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of his Jewish fathers. He was a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Here is the guy you would never expect to become a Christian. His very success rode on the backs of Christians he persecuted. For Paul to become a Christian then would almost be like Pharaoh becoming a Jew, a slave, or worse, Hitler. Becoming a Jew. Or maybe more modernly, leaders of ISIS becoming Christians and facing torture and eventually martyrdom. You know, Paul may seem an extreme example, but I wonder who the unlikely converts are in your life. Is it your neighbor? Maybe the colleague? In the cubicle next to you. Maybe it's your children. Or your parents. Who is it that seems more likely to become a Christian when they compare them to Paul? Paul not only hated Jesus, but he savagely opposed those who followed him. That is, until God intervened. On his way to persecute Christians, Paul is stopped 
And in a moment, in an instant, everything in his life changes as a blindingly bright light shines from heaven and a voice comes forth that says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? What was happening? Galatians 1.15. God was revealing Jesus to Paul. He opened his eyes to behold the Savior that the scriptures Paul knew so well had always foretold. Ever since sin first entered the world, that our only hope before God would not be in ourselves, but would be in a Savior who would live for us, die for us, resurrect, defeating death for us. It was, as Philip Ryken put it, the moment Paul understood the essence of the gospel. To see the glorious Christ was to know the reality of his cross and of his empty tomb. Paul had been the ship's captain, steering his men with unmatched zeal, unparalleled fervor, but in the wrong direction. And there was no human force on all of earth that could ever turn the ship around. But God. Did you see that in verse 15? Those sweet words. But when God set him apart, God called him. And the calling of God was by God's grace. And God revealed his son to him. And God was pleased to do it. Pleased to set his affection on this persecutor of his own church, his own body. God was pleased. And then he commissioned him to preach to the Gentiles. From persecutor to preacher. From persecutor to preacher. Only the power of God could do this and only the power of God did do this. Friends, this is the power of the gospel that Paul is speaking of, the good news about how God can save sinners like you and like me. If you are a Christian in this room this morning, there is gold for you to mine here. Do you see your own conversion in Paul's story? Do you see your own undeservedness, your own rebellious bent that has been with you since your birth? How up to your left to yourselves you would have never been able to merit God's favor? How, how God, though, being rich in mercy, as it says in Ephesians, because of the great love with which he loved you, even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, made you alive in Christ. From before your Birth Before you even had a chance to decide right from wrong, God set you apart. You were chosen, and it was God who initiated toward you. Perhaps sweetest of all is that it was his pleasure to do so. It was his pleasure to set his affections on you. I don't think it gets much sweeter than that word of truth. For as you struggle with being confident in God's affection for you. If you are in Christ, when the enemy, when Satan tempts you to 
think there's no way God could still love me. Think back to this verse and remember how there was nothing deserving in Paul. And yet God set his affection on him. Nothing of innate value, and yet God was pleased to love him. Or do you kind of vainly struggle trying to maintain or keep this love of God? Always faced with disappointment as time after time you you seem to fall short of the effort you're putting forward. Friends, would you try, would you think yourself capable of keeping that which you did not earn in the first place? The same God who called you is the same God who will keep you. The same God who has loved you is the same God who will continue to love you if you are in Christ. It was God who called you. It was God who revealed his son to you. It was God who stopped you on your road to Damascus. But friend, if you are not a Christian and have joined us this morning, I cannot begin to say how thankful I am that you have joined or have come here this morning. And I would love to meet you at the door on the way out, get a chance to meet you, talk with you. But I have to warn you that while this message is good news, it is only good news for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who, like Paul, have had him revealed to them. The Bible says that God made each one of us in his image to reflect him, image him perfectly. And any honest assessment of ourselves would would be clear that we have failed to do that. We are like Paul in that we too were captains or are captains of a ship in the wrong direction, heading toward God's good and just judgment for every sin committed, for he is good and he is just. The punishment which the Bible says is hell or eternal judgment. This news then only becomes good if the penalty for our sins is paid for. If somehow we can stand before this God in righteousness as righteous saints rather than rebellious sinners. But that is the good news. For God did send forth his son to live the life required of us, this perfect and righteous life required of you and of me, lived for us. And when he, when he died on the cross, what he was doing was taking upon himself the punishment, the penalty for each of those sins committed, for anyone who would turn away from them and trust in him alone. And then he gave his righteousness to such repentant sinners that those who trust in him now stand before God righteous and with the promise of eternal life. That, friends, is the good news of this gospel. So if you feel too far from God, it seems like he is too distant from you. Look at how unlovable Paul was to Jesus. And turn to him, even today, and be saved. And church believes such power belongs to this gospel. If God could save Paul, in fact, if God could save you, could he not save your boss? Could he not save the guy on your boat or the moms in the children's group you meet with? or the ladies in your card club, or whatever the category might be for you, if he was able to save you, are you any more likely a candidate than them? 
Now, it is good for us to live exemplary lives, to love those around us, and to even share our testimony with them. And yet we must not stop there. We must be like God revealing his son to Paul. We must reveal the son to them. Their lives will not be changed, their position before God not improved unless Jesus is revealed through the sharing of the gospel. Unless they are called to repent and believe in him for the forgiveness of sins. And friends, God delights in saving the least likely, doesn't he? He delights in taking those that are least likely and redeeming those, those attributes about them formerly used against him, to start being used for him in the advancement of his glory. So you have Paul, the zealous persecutor, now made the zealous preacher. How might the gifts of non-Christians in your life be used for the advancement of the gospel if God were to redeem them? Would you pray for that and then share the gospel with them? These are changes that no social program can finally accomplish. No, no government intervention can finally do. No rehabilitation center on its own can do this kind of heart transformation. It is the power of God miraculously working through the preaching of his gospel and changing the hearts of men and women. And that is Paul's fundamental argument in this first defense, that the gospel is reliable because it is uniquely and divinely powerful. For nothing else could have changed the life of Paul the way that God intervening in his life could. But friends, in case his opponents might accuse him of having changed the content of that gospel sometime after being converted, well, Paul turns next to the ongoing authenticity, the ongoing purity of that message, how it was not changed. And we see that in his second defense, divine authenticity. Let's look at verse 15 to, 20, to the end, verse 24. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches in Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. Paul's brief but pertinent timeline, it presents the foolishness, the folly of any allegation against the purity the authenticity of his message. He begins with this assurance that his gospel, it was untainted. That not only was the revelation from Jesus, but it had not been altered by any man after receiving it. Not even the apostles. In fact, it was three years before he even saw an apostle. 
And while it's not explicit what he did for those three years, we, other than that he stayed in Arabia and Damascus, we do see in Acts 9 verse 20 that what Paul did do was immediately in Damascus began preaching in the synagogues this gospel, proving that Jesus was the Christ. So effective was his preaching that just a few verses later, the Jews in Damascus plotted to kill him. The very reason that sent him out of Damascus and opened the door for his, this first visit three years into his conversion to Jerusalem. But his purpose was not to learn the gospel. He had already been preaching it. His purpose was just to, as he said, get acquainted with Peter. He wasn't going to learn or make alterations to his message. Only, he was only there for 15 days and met Peter and James and no one else. More likely, he was going to just meet them and learn of Jesus' kind of firsthand testimony of Jesus' life and ministry that he wasn't privy to the, during Jesus' physical life on earth. Even the churches throughout Judea didn't know Paul personally. So distant was he from their influence that they had not even seen him. According to verse 2, they had only heard of him. But why is that important? Why does Paul need to defend with this timeline? Friends, what Paul is doing is defending that the same gospel that converted him, the same gospel he immediately began preaching, was the same gospel he took up to Jerusalem, the same gospel with which he left Jerusalem, and the same gospel he preached now to these Gentiles in, in Galatia, these churches in Galatia, that his gospel is divinely authentic and the unadulterated message from God. But do not be mistaken, this does not give us kind of a permission slip to just, you know, go out into the woods and seek out our own unique revelation from God. Right? This is a unique time in salvation history where God is, is calling, commissioning apostles, those who will be inspired to inerrantly reveal his revelation to us and to his people, to the world. We, though, already have his divine revelation. It's in this book. We don't seek something new. It is recorded here in God's word. It's God's revelation of himself to us. This gospel and the entirety of his word is our sole and final authority for life and practice, for faith and practice, because it comes directly from God. So whether someone seeks to defend their message that they bring to you, say you're in the office or you're on the street or you're evangelizing, whatever it is you're doing, if someone comes to you with a message that they defend that's different than yours, if they try to defend it by the traditions of their church, or maybe for them it's, it's well, the angel Moroni told Joseph Smith, he revealed these golden tablets and told Joseph Smith, fill in the blank. Or the angel Gabriel revealed to Muhammad, fill in the blank. Or this charismatic preacher said he had a unique revelation from God. Friends, if their message is in any way contrary to this gospel, then it cannot be from God. If the salvation proclaimed is anything other than Paul's proclamation of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, it is a false gospel and it is not from God. But we should not be surprised that such angelic distortions would come. It was just in 
a few verses earlier, wasn't it? That Paul was saying, if an angel from heaven were to come to you and preach a different gospel. If you think of Paul writing to the churches in Corinth and 2 Corinthians 11, he says even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and his servants as servants of righteousness. So we need to be ready with understanding the gospel, understanding God's word so that we're ready to defend even against angelic beings, against false teachers. Friends, we want to view this book as the divine and final filter. You know, my my job back in D.C., we would often get one of the ways that we would work is uh, foreign countries would send these packages to us. They'd send literally a physical package, mail it to us, and that would be our body of work that we work with. But what was interesting is they were bound with a wax seal on top. It still happens. This is not just medieval, you know, signatories. This is today, 2017, foreign country X sends a package, wax seal, but that wax seal, it denotes the authenticity of this package is from them. That's how we knew, that was our guarantor that this was, in fact, from them as a true request of work. If we received any package that lacked that seal, at best, we were to review it with question and more likely immediately trash it. Friends, the gospel and God's word is the guarantor, is the seal of all things true. We use it as this divine filter through which we see whether things are true or false. And we should be amazed that God would even reveal himself to us. I think of Psalm 8. Why would you be mindful of me, you who created the heavens and the stars, that you are mindful of us. Does it amaze you that the God of creation has made himself known to you, has revealed himself to you? You know, billions of people walking the earth just today, billions more the centuries preceding, and yet God has taken a special and unique interest in you. Giving his word to you in his in this book. Do you look at it like that? Do you treasure it as though it's actually God's communication to you? The very words with which you can worship him and hear from him. To converse with him and relate with him. You know, imagine for a moment that you never listen to your spouse. Some spouses in here find that not so hard to imagine. You know, but imagine for a moment that you chose, I'm not going to listen to my spouse. Time and again, your spouse initiates towards you, and you instead fill your mind and thoughts with other things. How is it that you could say you love them or are desiring to know them if you consistently deny the very communication they have towards you? And yet, would we treat God and his word in that manner? Friends, we should treasure his word as his revelation to us, as his divine word to us. And so Paul defends that his gospel is divine because not just of its divine power, though it has that, but also its divine authenticity. But then it all begs the question, why? Why does God do all of this? 
why does God reveal himself to us and go further still and demonstrate his power in and through us? In closing, I want us to consider a more subtle but still permeating defense of Paul's throughout our passage this morning, one that is critical for grounding our right understanding of this gospel, and that is the divine purpose. The divine purpose. Who is the main subject, the main character, the main actor in our passage this morning? If you've been following along, you realize it's not Paul. Paul is a mere recipient. The actor is God. The initiator is God. So Paul's concluding verses should come as no surprise to us. Verse 22. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God, because of me. Friends, when we begin to recognize that God is himself at the center of everything, we begin to be consumed for a zeal for his glory. The more we understand God's grace, the more we begin to praise him for all things that he's done. The more we learn there is nothing for us to boast in except for him. Which is why Paul says in both 1st and 2nd Corinthians, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And this is Paul's final defense, for it is the very opponent, the very antithesis of all things man-made religion. Every alternative man-made religion has a piece of man at its core. You know, whether that's taking grace and adding to it our works, or the ability for you to complete the five pillars of faith, or the ability to deny yourself all things desirable, or to live a good life so that you're reincarnated better for the next one. Friends, whatever it might be, they all place a piece of us at their center, something for which we can boast. And yet at the center of grace is a denial of everything boastworthy in ourselves and a promotion of all things boastworthy about God. It is the denial of everything boastworthy about us and a promotion of all things boastworthy about God. And the same is true, not just in ourselves, but in those around us. You know, when you look around your church, this is a church in in Galatia. These churches are, excuse me, the, the churches that we're reading about here In Galatians, they're praising God for what they see in Paul. They're looking out and seeing God's work of grace in his life, and they give praise to him. So when we see good fruit in the lives of those around us, we should be compelled to praise God, not man, and to glory in God, not envy God working in and through them. So church, I would plead that you would seek to know the good fruit God is bearing in each other's lives. You know, use that as a platform to give glory to God. You know, I've only been here a few weeks, and I can testify. If I just pick out hospitality, 
you know, that is something that God commends, and he's, it, it, it's a fruit of, our, of the Spirit, not in the sense that Galatians put it, but it, throughout the New Testament is a fruit, is a mark of eldering. It is, it is something that God holds out as something the Spirit does in you to make you hospitable. And yet my family has been hosted abundantly by you. You know, from the first welcoming dinner of us and letting us join in with your goodbye dinner to the Browns, to Ted and Merrill hosting us for three weeks in their home, uh, to the Wolfooks coming here last night when I had an issue and dropping everything they were doing to come and serve me. You know, there's a mark of hospitality here that gives glory to God for which I praise him. Let me encourage you to share your testimonies of grace with one another. You know, just this past Tuesday, we got to go to the, the Hansons and we heard how God had saved them. And I trust it was not just us being encouraged, but it was God being glorified as we praised him for the good work he had done. How could you use your lunches, your coffee breaks, your time down in the fellowship hall and to share with one another the good evidences of God's grace that you see in each other and give glory to God? You know, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and you don't feel like you're seeing these clear acts of change in your life. And so you, you wonder whether God is still working. Let me, let me encourage you to do two things. One, pray for God to reveal any sense of complacency in you. And pray that God would reveal that and give you strength to break it. But then let me secondly encourage you, spend time with new Christians. Spend time with them and have this kind of newfound Paul-like zeal rub off on you and be mutually edified with one another. You know, we should be struck by these things in each other. And we should also examine our own motives, considering whether our words and our actions are also intended unto the glory of God. Life, whether ours or of those around us or the church at large, is intended to and will finally culminate in one resounding glorying in God. It will be his glory and praise that we offer for all of eternity. And we get to foreshadow and begin tasting of it even now in this life. So how do you know that what you believe is reliable? How do you know it isn't simply fake news? Paul presents an easy answer and the same answer for assessing all news. And that's the reliability of the source. If you are a Christian, you can be confident in the reliability of this gospel because its source is God, proven by its divine power, its divine authenticity, and its divine purpose. And this news is good, reliable, and worth your very life. So let's pray and close. Our Father, we do praise you for this wonderful news of the gospel. Uh, Teach us what it is to follow after the Lord Jesus, to give our lives unto it. Help us to trust you and trust your word and be marked by an obedience to it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Friends, we're going to take a